Lord, we, we see these things and we get concerned and we uh, realize that we have been so blessed in this nation. For a couple of hundred years, we have had remarkable freedoms, freedoms that uh, men uh, paid for, um, guys who were 18, 19, 20, uh, in the prime of life, just out of high school, would go um, spill their blood. on islands in the Pacific, um, on the beaches of France, and um, house-to-house fighting in different cities of Europe, and, and even before that, in, in different wars that our nation was involved in. There has been a tremendous price that was paid. And uh, we are saddened and we are grieved But quite frankly, as we have done this study over the last number of months about the demise of Israel and Judah, we have to say that we are not surprised. Um, We are saddened, but we're not surprised. Now, we thank you that we are not without hope. We thank you that we know you and that you have called us to know you, that, and, and Lord, you, you are the one that called us. We have not chosen you, but you have chosen us. Uh, you said to the disciples that you appointed them that they might go forth and bear fruit. And that's what you have in mind for each one of us. And Lord, we uh, are grieved when we hear these reports that Les was reading, and we know they're true because we're in spiritual battle. And, and the battle is fervent, and the battle is intense. And if the enemy can ambush us in private, and if he can ambush us when our families are asleep and we're surfing the net, then what he does is he, uh, he robs us of our effectiveness. And Father, we pray that you might make us men of great wisdom, that you might give us... Uh, a desire to be like Christ, that you would give us a desire to be, um, to be your men in, in, in private as well as in public. We, we get concerned, Lord, because we, we see the demise and we see the deterioration and we see um, law being violated on every hand and a nation cannot stand that for too long. It will collapse from within. But we don't want the collapse to occur in our lives or in our families. You've called us to lead a family. You've called us to be husbands and fathers and grandfathers. And Father, it is out of our character from which we lead. It's not so much what we say, it's what we do. It's the kind of men that we are in private. We would desire to be your men. For those of us, Lord, that are struggling with this pornography issue, I pray that you would help us to get uh, ruthless and to get brutal in dealing with it. The thing when we deal with this that we're most afraid of is that someone will find out. And we're so embarrassed and we're so ashamed that we've gotten trapped in it. But James said, confess your sin one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This kind of sin, Lord, is not broken without the assistance of someone in the body. And I would pray for those guys that you would give them courage to go and talk to someone that they can trust, someone that will keep this in confidence. And as they confess their sin to them, what they have just done is outflank the enemy and he has nothing to hold over them anymore. And then they have a brother that will pray for them and encourage them. This accountability software is such a great thing. Lord, give us, uh, give us a love for truth. Give us a love for purity. Give us uh, a love for you that we would not bring shame to your name. That we would not embarrass you by our behavior. Thank you for your cleansing, for your forgiveness. We cannot live without it because we are just men and we're frail. But we want to be your men and we want to grow. And we each have a 
unique place. We have a unique post that you have assigned us to where we are to live out your truth and where we are to model your truth. Enable us to do that through your word and spirit which you have given to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have completed, as of last week, a study that we started back in the fall that we called Living Lessons from Dead Kings. And we looked at um, a number of kings that uh, followed Solomon. The big three in Israel, the first three were, were uh, Saul and David and then Solomon. And then, as you know, the nation split. You had the northern kingdom, you had the southern kingdom, and 20 kings in the north, 20 kings in the south. Some of you guys ought to have this memorized by now. Because my, uh, what, what, what is the... Um, what, what, what is the term on repetition that, uh, what, well, gosh, I just, I just lost it. Repetition is the mother of learning. I want to say the mother of all battles, but I knew that was not quite right. That, that was another context. I don't know where that came from. Uh, but repetition gets it in your mind, and repetition gets it clear. So if you guys have been with us, you've got a pretty good grip on these kings. Um, we... we uh, each of these kings had a unique place in history, and each of these kings had a unique opportunity. And uh, out of the 40, only eight could be considered good. And even with that definition, it's stretching it a little bit uh, because most of them squandered their opportunity. Now, the first night that we started this study, I made the statement that every man is king of his castle. And we have alluded to this from time to time, that if you're a husband, if you're a father, if you're a grandfather, uh, you are a king. You have a queen, you have children, which are your subjects. You have yours. Now, it may not be a large kingdom, and your castle may not be a big castle. It may be a two-bedroom apartment, uh, that's, but it's still your castle. It's your home. Uh, those children are your subjects, if you will. And we give an account to God for the way that we rule that little kingdom. It has been said that every family is a small civilization. Well, it's also true that every family is a small kingdom. I, I don't know about you guys and what you have uh, garnered from that study on the kings, but uh, a number of things have hit me. And one of the things that hit me is, as we went through that study and looked at the lives of those different men, one of the things that, that hit me was how so many of them um, completely ignored the responsibility that they had as fathers. Completely and totally. Uh, in other words, they were so busy out building a kingdom that they forgot about their primary responsibility in the home. You know, the scriptures tell us in 1 Timothy 3 that before uh, a man can lead in the church, he must pr first prove his leadership where? In the home. Uh, that's, that's very, very clear. That, that principle across the board in evangelical circles, I, I think, is one that's um, uh, often ignored. We, we often look at how much a man gives, or we look at a man's influence in the community, or we look at a man's um, uh, you know, educational background, his status, but the scriptures are very clear when Paul talked to Timothy. He said a man, before he's appointed as an elder, must first know how to manage his own household well. Now, as we wrap up this study and, and we take the next two weeks off for spring break, I, I, I want to just pull some things together. Some principles, I guess, from these kings that we studied, but... I want to bring it on down to where we are and to our homes and to our kingdoms for which we are responsible. So I'd like you to turn with me to Psalm 127. Psalm 127 is one of the songs of ascent that they would sing when they would make their way up to Jerusalem. Three times a year, the men of Israel were together, and as they would go up to Jerusalem, because it was a climb up to Jerusalem, in the upper elevations, they would sing these different psalms, the psalms of ascent. Psalm 127 
Very short. Let's read it. We'll come back and make some observations. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Um, this is... Uh, this is a psalm that, that deals with, um, uh, with, with family. It's, it is a, uh, a psalm that deals with uh, the basic relationships of life. It's a psalm that deals with, with marriage. Right out of the blocks, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. There are a lot of people in this community that are working hard to build their families. They're working hard to build a home. They're, they're working hard to build their lives. Um, they, they, they love their children. They want to be responsible. Uh, many of them are working from early in the morning till late at night. But, but there's an interesting statement that's made right out of the blocks. And the statement is, unless the Lord builds the house. They who labor, labor in vain. Now, who is laboring? Who is they? Well, in uh, the ideal situation, it would be a mother and father who are laboring together. Uh, that's where marriage comes in. We talked a few weeks ago about some of the creation ordinances that God laid out from the very beginning that were before the law. Uh, marriage is a creation ordinance. For this cause, Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife or cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Um, and as we mentioned, never before in the history of the world, never in any culture, has there been an attempt to redefine the essence of marriage. In all the paganism, in all the perversity that you see sociologically, uh, it was uh, Toynbee who uh, identified 27 different civilizations um, uh, none of them attempted to redefine marriage as we're attempting to redefine it today. God owns marriage. God invented marriage. Uh, it is a fundamental unit. Uh, every church is comprised of families. Now, we have been hit. We have been hit with an epidemic of divorce in this country. Some of you guys have been through divorce. You've been through the heartbreak of a divorce. Uh, nobody wins in divorce. Uh, everybody gets hurt. Everybody gets damaged. Everybody gets scarred. Everybody gets beat up. E everybody carries that pain for years and years and years. Uh, we should not be surprised that marriage has been under attack. And we should not be surprised where we are as a nation. You think back to some of the kings that we studied. And, uh, for instance, Jehoshaphat. One of the good things that Jehoshaphat did... Uh, he'd kind of fouled up there for a while. He had a good start, but then he got himself entangled. He made a bad alliance with Ahab, and then uh, he made a deal where Ahab's daughter married his son Jehoram, which was a bad move. Um, that never should have happened. It brought tremendous grief to that family. So after Jehoshaphat died... And Jehoram becomes king. It's not too long after that that Jehoram kills all of his brothers, probably under the influence of his wife, who was the daughter of Jezebel, who was the wickedest woman in the history of the world. Um, let, me just, let me just throw something in here. Um, we used to have something called arranged marriages. Today we think that is deranged to have an arranged marriage. Uh, that is so foreign to our culture. It really is. 
But uh, that's how they used to do it. They used to think that marriage was so important that it couldn't be left up to young people. A father would choose a wife for his daughter. And we say, well, we're modern and we're, we're sophisticated. We're way beyond that. Yes, and look how successful we've been. Uh, these these uh, couples didn't know each other. But there were certain things in place, one of which was there was no divorce. Divorce wasn't an option. Uh, did they get along? Did they like each other at the beginning? No, probably not. Uh, did they take a compatibility test? Did they go meet up with a psychologist and go through a battery of MMPI and perform acts and all these other things? Did they get on, uh, uh, what is that thing that they have on the radio, e, uh, eHarmony? Yeah, yeah. They, they didn't have eHarmony back then. Uh, they had e-ignorance <laughs> is what they had. And so two fathers would get together, and, you know, they knew each other, they knew the families, they knew what they believed, and they said, you know, a little four-year-old girl, and I got this seven-year-old boy, hey, boom, bam, bing, you know, when they're 18, let's put them together. Fathers were involved. You know what's tragic in our society today is that uh, fathers are not involved. I talked with a, a father here this week whose um, um, had to have a confrontation with his daughter's ex-fiance because this guy won't leave her alone. And she doesn't want to continue the relationship, but he won't stop. So this guy's a good dad. So what did he do? Well, he had to get involved because his, it's his daughter. And... Uh, She's asked him, and she's looking for counsel, and he agrees this is not a good thing. And this young man, by his behavior, is proving it's not a good thing. We are developing passive men in this nation who would be hesitant to step into a situation like that. But you see, that's your job, your father. Now, unfortunately, Jehoshaphat made a bad move and made a bad decision. Uh, it, 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 was, it was really a bad thing to do. Uh, and that affected his family for generations. Uh, what... What happens in these deals is that men, in their kingdoms, they would compromise. He compromised. He made a deal with Ahab. He never should have done that. But when he repented, one of the first things that he did was is that he set up judges around Israel in every fortified city, and he gave them instruction to be very, very careful to observe the law of God and not depart from the left nor to the right. Um, that's being a good king. Uh, good kings are in submission to the king of kings. Um, you know, there, obviously there are other kings other than the ones we studied. You can study the kings of England. You can study the kings of France. Um, or you can study about the king of kings. And when I say that, of course, you know that I'm referring to Alexander the Great. You know about Alexander the Great? Yeah. There are 15 cities named after him. Uh, he, he was a great king. Uh, his father was a great king, his father Philip. Uh, in, in his book, uh, Desire of the Everlasting Hills, Thomas uh, Cahill speaks of Alexander the Great, um, who was born in July of 356 B.C., uh, into the home of a man who was a strong leader and a strong ruler, um, who was uh, winning battles and taking nations. Cahill says, uh, his father's aggressions frightened the child Alexander, but for one reason only, there will be nothing left for me to conquer, said the young prince. Isn't that interesting? Um, well, he outdid his father. And if you ever look at a map that shows all that Alexander the Great did, uh, it is absolutely astonishing. He had victory after victory after victory. Um, and he began to call himself the king of kings because nobody could stand in his way. Um, he, he could rule many nations, but he couldn't rule himself. 
what ruled him was alcohol. And as he went into Babylon, uh, at the age of 33, he wasn't there too long, but alcohol caught up, caught up with him, and he died. But he was, he was a phenomenal king. Uh, there are allusions in, in uh, Daniel to, to Alexander the Great. Uh, we know that he wasn't the king of kings. Jesus is the king of kings. Unless the Lord... See, see this guy, this guy built a phenomenal kingdom, but he couldn't hold it. You see, he just couldn't quite hold it. Joseph P. Kennedy, senior, built a great empire, if you know anything about him. Uh, guy cleaned up uh, in the crash of 29. He got out when everybody was getting in. Uh, when the shoe shine boy that was shining his shoes gave him a stock tip, he figured if the shoe shine boy was investing in Wall Street, it was time to get out, and he did. And he got out, and he made a killing. Now, he did inside trading like Martha Stewart never thought of. <laughs> but back then, it wasn't against the law the way it is now. But the guy was a crook. Um, Catholic, all those children, um, respected in New England society, um, wound up buying a film studio, carried on different affairs with different actresses when his son, uh, he would bring in these different women uh, to the home in Boston uh, under the guise of just being a friend who's visiting. Um, he took one of them out on his sailboat. He didn't realize that his son, John, who would become president of the United States, had stowed away under a sail, hid himself under a sail, that was packed away to scare his dad and make a joke. And as, unbeknownst to him, his son's on the sailboat, he goes out quite a distance and then has sexual intercourse with this actress. This is in two biographies, by the way, that are written by friends of the family. The young boy comes out to surprise his father, and he did. Caught them in the act, and when he saw what his father was doing, Young John F. Kennedy threw himself in the water to kill himself. His dad had to dive in to get him. But it wasn't long before he was emulating what his father would do. And they, he would share women with his sons. That's also documented. You see, he was going to build a great kingdom, and he had a plan for his oldest boy, Joseph, to be president. But because of the cowardice of the father... Joseph P. Kennedy, who was ambassador to the court of St. James, who was ambassador to England. You see, he was an appeaser. And when Hitler was coming to power, Joseph Kennedy said, let's just work a deal with the guy. We're not going to take him. We can't fight him. We can't handle him. His son was so ashamed of the cowardice of his father that his oldest boy went on a mission, and everyone said, don't fly because the weather was terrible. But that badge of being a coward was so strong, he didn't want it on him and never should have made the flight and... The plane crashed, and he, his life was taken. So then the plan was dashed for him to be president that the father had. So then we moved to the next boy. Um, unless the Lord builds the house. Unless the king of kings builds the house. They who labor, labor in vain. Uh, Jesus talked about the two ways that we can build. Jesus said that the foolish man built his house on the sand, and when the storm came, everything was gone. But the wise man built his house on the rock, and the storms come and the winds, and the house remains, and the house stands. Everything has a foundation. Families have a foundation. The family in which you were raised had a foundation. What was the foundation? And let me ask you this. What kind of king was your father? What kind of man was he? Uh, what did he teach you? What did he say to you? What did he model for you? Um, how did he treat your mother? Um, did he, um, was he the one that got the family up on Sunday and got everybody to the breakfast table because you were going to church? Or did he leave that for your mother to do? 
You see, every man is a king, and every man is making choices, and every man is uh, ruling a kingdom. But unless the Lord builds the house, all that a man does, all the activity, unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain. You know, there's something really interesting about our culture, guys. Um, you know, Psalm 127 is assuming some things. Um, what it is assuming is that a man, when it says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it, it assumes there a man and a woman that are committed to each other from Genesis 2.24 and that are building something, that are building a family. Uh, to do this, to take on marriage, to take on the role of a husband, to take on the role of a father, uh, requires uh, maturity, and it requires a willingness to embrace responsibility. In one of our studies, we talked about the concept of becoming one's own man. There was a study done at Yale under a guy named Daniel Levinson uh, back in the 70s, and they studied a number of men, and they identified certain chapters and phases that men go through. This is where uh, the term midlife crisis came from. They identified that that can be a very difficult time for men, somewhere between 38 to 43. Uh, a lot of guys deal with crisis. Now, what isn't so uh, well known is that that same study showed that there's also another crisis right at age 30. And basically, from the, from the, from the, uh, the study, see, we know about midlife crisis, but not every guy goes through midlife crisis. What's interesting is, you're going to go through crisis. You either go through it right around 30, there's a crisis period in your life, or if you get through that, it's going to hit you at 40. Uh, my crisis, the one I went through, and I told you about this a few weeks ago, when I went through my depression, was right around 30. When I hit 40, I sailed through it. Because um, I was on medication. I didn't know what I was doing. No. Yeah, there you go. But I don't, you know. I don't remember that at all. No, my crisis when I was right around 31, 32, 33, you see? And a lot of guys go through crisis there because you've been married for a few years and guys, oh, wait a minute, this is, what I, this is not what I signed up for. See, and other guys don't deal with that till 40. But, but somewhere, one way or the other, you're going to deal with some crisis in your life. Um, what's developed in our culture, though, is an aversion by young men to accept responsibility and to embrace commitment. See, are, is there a phase called becoming one's own man? Yes. And it's in the late 30s where you are not a junior member of male society. You become, you're moving towards a senior membership uh, in your life. You're becoming more responsible. You're closer to four. You're becoming your own man. And your father chose to live one way, and your father was king of your house. Maybe he abandoned your family. Maybe he stayed. Maybe he was a godly man. Maybe he was an ungodly man. Maybe you love him to this day, and you can't wait to see him again. Maybe you can hardly stand the thought of your father. Well, now we're the fathers. Now we're the kings. What's happening in America is that, with everything else that's going on in our culture, what is happening is that, uh, Joseph Epstein has written a, an article on what he calls the perpetual adolescent. Perpetual adolescent. Can I give you a few highlights from this? Because you see, this is something that threatens us all um, as men. Uh, he begins by talking about the fact that uh, if you ever see old footage from baseball games, when Babe Ruth was playing, or when Joe DiMaggio had his, what was it, 56-game hitting streak, he points out, do you notice that most of the individuals in the stadium, in the baseball stadium, are men, and most of them are wearing coats and ties and hats? And then he goes on and does a very interesting observation about the fact that there was, it used to be in America, that there were lines of demarcation between being an adolescent and being a male and being a man. And it was even personified in the way that one would dress. 
Now, I'm not going to read that to you, but this guy's a very astute observer of culture. Uh, one of the things that he points out in our culture is that um, we are a culture of youth. We worship youth. We honor youth. Epstein says, when I say youth culture, I don't mean merely today that the young today are transcendent, the group most admired among the various age groups in American society. Now catch this. But that youth is no longer a transitory state through which one passes on the way from childhood to adulthood, but an aspiration, a vaunted condition in which if one can only arrange it, you can settle into it in perpetuity. Then he talks about movies. He says this concept is found in the movies. They reinforce this idea. Movies for some years now have been made not only increasingly for the young, but by the young. Um, <clears throat> he goes on and he says, Robert Redford, though now in his mid-60s, remains essentially a guy in jeans, a handsome graduate student with wrinkles. Paul Newman, now in his late 70s, seems uncomfortable in a suit. Hugh Grant, the English actor, may be said to be professionally boyish. And in a recent role in the movie About a Boy, he is described in the New York Times as a character who surrounds himself with gadgets, videos, CDs, and other toys, and who is doing everything in his power to avoid growing up. That's our culture. The actor Jim Carrey, who is 42, that's unbelievable. Not long ago, said of the movie The Majestic, in which he stars, it's about manhood. It's about adulthood, as if italicizing the rarity of such movies. He goes on and says, recent history has seemed to be on the side of keeping people from growing up by supplying only a paucity of stern test of the kind out of which adulthood is usually formed. We shall never have another presidential candidate tested by the Depression or by his experience in World War II. These were events that proved crucibles for the formation of adult character, not to say manliness. My son John, who's uh, uh, be 23 this next week, I was talking to him a few months ago, and he had seen the movie, uh, uh, the Tom Hanks movie about war. What's that called? Saving Private Ryan. And uh, he said, Dad, he said, that, he said, those guys... He said, Dad, those guys were my age. He said, those guys were younger than me. I said, yeah, if you had been over there, you would have been leading a platoon. He said, I don't know anything about that, Dad. I said, I know. And, you know, thank God you haven't. But he said, yeah, but you know, Dad, in a way, in a way you miss something. Because you're not forced to grow up. Those guys were forced to grow up. He said, those guys, he said, you know what, Dad? He said, those guys were men. I said, they sure were. They were men. What do we have today? We got perpetual adolescence. I really want to say something, but I'm not going to say it. No, that's all right. I, nah, it's all right. It's okay. What'd that, what'd you say? No, I was, no, that's all right. I, nah, hey, I was going to say John Kerry ought to run for president of France, but I'm not going to say that. Okay. All right. L listen to this. This is what made me think of that. He said experiences in the Depression and World War II. These were events that proved crucibles for the formation of adult character, not to say manliness. Henceforth, all presidential candidates future presidential candidates will come with a shortage of what used to be, uh, of, of what used to pass for significant experience. Crisis for future politicians will doubtless be about having to rethink their lives when they didn't get into Brown or Yale or found themselves unequipped emotionally for Stanford Business School. You see, that will be their crucible. Um, This guy really has some significant things to say. Uh, he, he says they're putting off responsibility. There's time enough to toss away one's 20s, maybe even one's 30s. 40 is soon enough to get serious about life. 
Maybe 50, when you think about it, is the best time to really get going in earnest. The old hunger for life, the eagerness to get into the fray, has been replaced by an odd patience that often looks more like passivity. In the 50s, people commonly married in their 20s, which may or may not have been a good thing, but marriage did prove a forcing into adulthood for men and women, especially where children issued from the marriage, which they usually did fairly quickly. W.H. Alden once said, Obviously, it is normal to think of oneself as younger than one is, but it is fatal to want to be younger. Did you catch that? It's fatal to want to be younger. So, we live in the day of Botox. We live in a day of uh, Rogaine. We live in a day of facelifts. We day, live in a day of, uh, yeah, whatever the heck that is. See, and that's just the men. You see? No, is that not true? It's unbelievable. Now, see, here's my point. Unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain. You know what? When Jesus Christ comes in to a young man's life, his life's going to change. And one of the things that's going to happen is that he's going to start desiring for godly things. And one of the things that happen is when Christ comes into our life, a process begins. We pass from death to life. And now, now that we've been born spiritually, now there is a goal, and the goal is to become mature in Christ. Uh, the, the goal is, is to grow up in Christ. Well, here's what I'm saying, is that Our culture is in such a state right now where, and this guy talks about this, if if you look at uh, the popular sitcoms, uh, Seinfeld is still unbelievably popular. And it's on, I mean, it's on all day long on different channels. What is Seinfeld about? It's about uh, young people in their 30s who are unwilling to take on any responsibility. These guys are living in perpetual adolescence. Then you've got friends. What's that about? Same thing. It's perpetual adolescence. See, there's a point where it's time to grow up. There's a point where it's time to become a man. There's a point where it's time to move ahead and begin to make something of yourself and to take responsibility. Um, That's becoming a rare thing in our culture. Uh, And one of the reasons... One of the reasons that young people are afraid of marriage, they're afraid of it because of what they've seen. They're afraid of it because so many of them have been products of divorce. So many of them have been hurt. So many of them have been damaged. So what was it that Theodore Roosevelt said? He said the greatest thing a man can do is to stay married, you see. Um, Marriage grows you up, doesn't it? Unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain. Um, You know, one of the things that marriage does is that marriage forces you to mature. You realize this when you have children. When those kids come out of the womb, those kids have absolutely no interest in serving you. Do they? Somebody's going to have to grow up. Somebody's going to have to be mature. Um, I remember uh, right after Rachel was born, she was three or four months old, and Mary, I'll never forget this, we sat down on that sofa, she said, Steve, I need to talk to you for a minute. And I said, okay, and she said, no, we really need to talk. Let's sit down. I thought, okay, this is a big deal. And she said, Steve, I noticed something. I said, okay. And she said, "Um, I've noticed something about Rachel's diaper. I said, good. Well, what have you noticed? She said, I've noticed that you will change one kind of diaper. <laughs> but there is a second kind of diaper. Come to think of it, it's a number two diaper. <laughs> and she said, Steve, I've never seen you change a number two diaper. <coughs> I had been found out. <laughs> and I'll be honest with you, I'd, you know, I'd smell that stuff or I'd see, you know, and I'd, you know, and I'd just keep going. I'm just being honest, because I knew Mary would do it. 
I knew Mary would do it. Now, she called me on it, and she saw it. See, I didn't have time to do that because I was a young rookie pastor. I'm trying to build this church. I'm trying to, you know, it's in the Bay Area. I mean, there, there, there's a war on. There's a culture war. You know, there's the forces of good and evil. I don't have time to do that. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you must become the, in the Greek, it's diaper changer. No. You must become the servant of all. See, that's leadership. That forced me to become responsible. That forced me. And, you know, I've met guys who do incredible exploits. I've met guys that have uh, swam underwater from uh, San Francisco to Hawaii um, without oxygen. I've met guys that have climbed Mount Everest without oxygen. But I want to tell you something. You're not a real man until you can change a number two diaper without throwing up. That's a real man. Right now, I want to gag just thinking about it. <laughs> now, now, you, now, now, see, we talk about these kings, and we look at these guys, and we look at their lives, and we say, how do these guys get so screwed up? Um, but see, the question is, what about me? What about my home? See, one of the things that happen is that, see, when you're a king, you get used to being served, and you don't ever serve. The, the job of a king is to serve is not to be served. But yet, when we see kings and we read about kings, they got servants. They got people that cut their grass. They got people that do their gardens. They got people that trim their roses. They got people that do their wash. They got carriages. They got guys that clean up their horses. They got, they've always got somebody waiting. See, that's the last thing a king is supposed to be. A king is not supposed to be served. A king is supposed to be a servant, you see. See, that's where a lot of these guys went wrong. They never developed that mindset of being willing to serve. See, it's the little things that catch you. Unless the Lord builds the house. And see, unless the Lord is in my life, I'm not going to learn how to be a servant. Unless the Lord is working in my life, unless I'm in the scriptures, and unless I'm hearing the word and doing the word, I'm not going to develop into a servant because that's not my natural tendency and it's not your natural tendency. He goes on and he says this in Psalm 127. He says, he talks about uh, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. There is, what's that all about? Well, every city in Israel of any size had walls and it had gates that they would close at night and they would be a watchman that would walk around and make sure everything was okay. Now, See, there's a human element, but there's a divine element. Uh, we do what we can do. We have a watchman. But unless the Lord is guarding the city, even as the watchman does his work, see, there's going to be trouble. Uh, we do our part as men. We do our part in the kingdom that God has given to us. But we cannot do it unless the king of kings is king in our house, and we're submitted to the king of kings. He goes on and says in verse 2, it's vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Um, we talked about this before, that in the Old Testament, and all these kings were under this, uh, there was a Sabbath. There was a Sabbath day. And you remember after the, uh, uh, after the two kingdoms were carried off into captivity, uh, the southern kingdom was in captivity in Judah, uh, Judah was in captivity for, with Babylon for, for 70 years. And then when they start to come back to the land under Cyrus, uh, uh, you've got Zerubbabel, then you've got uh, uh, Ezra, and then Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is doing the walls. And do you remember the issue that came up? They were selling and doing business on the Sabbath. And Nehemiah got all over those guys. Uh, I, I find this to be so contemporary. Because you see, when it says, it's vain for you to rise up early to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved in his sleep. When you're a king, the tendency is to be focused on the externals of your life. The, the tendency is to be focused on your life's work. The tendency is to be focused on what it is that drives you and motivates you and uh, excites you. If you're privileged enough to work... Uh, at a job or in a career, 
and you can't believe you get paid to do it, uh, you're a very fortunate man. But there's a danger there. And the danger, and, and see, you're good at what you do. And when you're good at what you do, there's a tendency to spend all your time doing it. See, that's what happened, when, that, that's what would happen to some of these kings. Uh, these guys were building the king. They're building fortified cities, you know. They're putting walls around the difference. They're doing all this stuff. It's all good stuff. But the tragedy of, of reading about the kings is that for the most part, these kings failed to prepare their sons to follow them. There was no discipleship, generally speaking. There was, uh, there was such a focus on the outward. There was such a focus on the external. There was such a focus on success in career that, that the work that would really make a difference after they were dead and gone didn't get done. See, it's vain. What does this say? Boy, I'll tell you, any of these kings, if we could talk to them, they would agree with this. It's vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Um, we're to work hard. We're, we're to, uh, what does Colossians say? Whatever you do, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. We're to work and we're to work hard. But we forget as men sometimes that there is a work that we have to do under the roof of our houses. That's the most important work. I'll tell you something that Joseph Kennedy had right. And you got to hand it to this guy. you got to hand it to this sucker. I was speaking at a Promise Keepers in Florida. And I'm flying home. And I usually carry books with me. I'd read everything in my briefcase. So I walk into that bookstore at the airport in Tampa. And I see this biography, and I just read one of Kennedy. But here was another one. And, and I opened it, I said, I'm not going to buy this. And it was like 35 bucks. I said, I'm not buying this. But I'll stand here and read it, because my plane doesn't leave for an hour. <laughs> so I open it up, and here's what the first paragraph, basically, I'm paraphrasing. Here's basically what the first paragraph said. Uh, it said, Joseph P. Kennedy Sr. was lining up a putt on an exclusive golf course in West Palm Beach, Florida. And as he was lining up the putt, one of his playing partners said, Hey, Joe, what kind of work are you doing these days? What's keeping you busy? And without taking his eye off the ball, Kennedy replied, My work is my son's. I bought the book, and I read it, and it was, worth, it was worth the money. My work is my son's. That guy, as screwed up as he was, he had a vision. He had a vision for his sons. He had a vision for the next generation that many of the kings in Judah and none of the kings in Israel did not have. They never thought about the next generation. Now, some of you guys, you're sitting here thinking, you know, Steve, well, this is all well and good, but it's a little late for me. Because, see, I've already raised my kids. It's not too late for you. So when my kids are up and gone, my kids are 35, my kids are 45, whatever they are. Uh, guys, it's never too late to begin. For those of us, for those of us that are still having kids at home, wh what should we take from this? Uh, we've talked about this before. Uh, I, I strongly suggest that we all take a Sabbath. We talked about marriage being a creation ordinance. The Sabbath is a creation ordinance. The Sabbath existed before the law. Uh, those creation ordinances are for all people at all times. And you say, well, what's the New Testament say about the Sabbath? It doesn't say anything about the Sabbath because Jesus set the Sabbath free. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago. If you're a pastor, hey, let me ask you something. You think, you think Sunday is a Sabbath for Chuck? Let me tell you something. That's no Sabbath. So he's got to have another day that he takes off. The Sabbath is supposed to be a day of rest. You see, these guys, here, here's what happened. These guys were building their kingdoms. This, these guys were putting all this stuff together. And they never, see, the problem was in Israel, they didn't observe the Sabbath. 
There was also in Israel, there was a Sabbath year. That every seven years, they were to let the land, uh, they weren't to work the land. Now, they never observed that. And as a result, when they went into captivity, they went into captivity for 70 years, which was exactly the amount of Sabbath years that they owed to God. You can't function 24-7. A lot of times, the reason guys don't take a day off, the reason they won't take a Sabbath, is that they say, I can't afford to do it. But you see, this, this is a great principle here. It says, it's vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Uh, John Piper, I, I, I read something he did one time, and he said, you know, every night when you go to sleep, it's, it's a preparation for death. And that, I think that's really good. Because when you think about it, every day there's a point where you've got to die. In fact, sometimes we'll even use the term. We'll say, you know what? I'm going to bed because I'm, I'm dead. <laughs> Some of you guys look that way right now. You see? We're just exhausted. We're shot. We're worn out. i got to go to sleep. I have to get totally unconscious here. Now, when you're unconscious, you know what? You're vulnerable. When you're asleep, you're susceptible. When you're asleep, you don't know what the heck's going on. But God does. I don't think my boys would mind me telling the story. I haven't asked them. I think they'd be okay with it. I'll call them tonight and get their permission. I'll show you the sovereignty of God. Um, and they're both really doing well and out at Biola University out in California. And Mary just talked with John this afternoon, and she said, and she was telling John she's been struggling a little bit physically. And John said, well, you know, Mom, don't forget now you're really blessed. And she said, well, I am, John. All right, well, that's true. He said, Mom, you got three kids walking with the Lord, including me. And see, a few years ago, he wouldn't have said that. And uh, that was pretty neat. But I remember the night that I couldn't sleep because I had, I just couldn't sleep. It was too hot in there, and I just couldn't sleep. And I never do this, ever, (laughs) ever. But that night, I got up, and I went and slept on the couch. I've never slept on that couch in my life. But that night, I went and slept on that couch. And I hadn't been on that couch 15 minutes, and the phone rings. And it said, Mr. Farrar. I said, yes. He said, this is the Denton Police Department. We've got your son Josh here. And I said, no, you mean John. Because that's when John was a senior in high school and really going through his tough time. I said, no, you mean John. He says, no, I mean Josh. I said, no, you don't have Josh, you've got John. He said, no, sir, I believe I have Josh. I said, I want you to hold on just a minute. And I went upstairs into that room to make sure Josh was there, and he wasn't. And he was a freshman. And I came downstairs, and I said, where are you right now? And he told me, and I said, I'll be there in 10 minutes. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, Oh, something else I had to tell you. That phone that was in our master bedroom wasn't working. Isn't that something? I went up there, and there's a cop, and there's Josh and a buddy. That was the first time. Josh had ever snuck out. And it was the last time. (laughs) This is true. Josh, we never had any trouble with Josh. But he had gotten involved with a friend. And we were very concerned about this. I mean, I was watching this kid like a hawk. And uh, anyway, I won't go into all the details, but they got caught. And I'm, this, this cop was a good guy. He was, he, was, he was a good guy. And we're talking and we're dealing with this. And at one point I said, well, you know what? Maybe you just need to take him on the jail. Because I wanted to put a little fear there. And he was looking at me. And at first, he, and then he, I caught his eye. He knew what I was doing. 
And it, it wasn't that serious, but we we're going to teach a lesson here. And he said, well, I could do that. And I said, well, you know, I could, I could, I, I got a pretty full day tomorrow. I could probably be over there about 4.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> and then we're talking, and that, uh, he said, well, he said, uh, he said uh, I said, well, here's the other thing. I know this other boy's parents. I, if, if you'd be open to this, I can just take these two boys and go right over there. And he said, why don't you do that, sir, because we've got another call. So I put these boys, Josh and this other kid, in the car. We drive over. Knock on the door. It's 4.30. The parents come to the door. Mother comes. I said, if you get your husband, we sit down. And then as we talked, I said, now, here's, here's the deal, boys. This friendship's over. It's done with. You guys aren't going to get together anymore because uh, you've broken our trust. And uh, Josh is not going to be allowed to come here. He won't be allowed to come here until we see some radical changes. Um, you know what Josh told me later? Oh, and I'll tell you something else. When John, who was in a rebellion, found out what had happened, that was the first break we saw in his heart because he realized that his little brother was watching his example. And he'd snuck out. And now his brother was following in his footsteps. And when he found that out, that was the, we started seeing a change. Isn't that interesting? Here's what's really interesting. Josh told me in the car, we're driving home. And he said, Dad, I got to tell you something. I said, okay. He said, I knew when I walked out the door, I was going to get caught. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, I knew it. I knew if I walked out, I was going to get caught. And I said, well, you're a prophet. Because <laughs> <laughs> you got caught. And then it's, you know why I tell you that story, guys? Because God is sovereign. Even when we sleep, God is sovereign. Even when we sleep, God is working for us. Even when, he gives to his beloved in their sleep, the scripture says. Because he never sleeps and he never slumbers. We have to sleep and we have, and see here we are sometimes we get so caught up in her, we think, I can't take a day. Um, I think it was Samuel Johnson, if I'm not mistaken, who would talk about a day that he spent with his father where they went fishing. And as his life went by, over the years, he would always look back on that day as one of the most significant days in his life. His father, who was an extraordinarily busy man, took the time to take him fishing. He'd referred to, he talked about it when he was 75 years old, the day that he and his dad went fishing and he was 10 years old. Years and years later, after he died, a family member found the diary of his father, looked up the date that he often referred to, and written in the father's hand was this, a day wasted, gone fishing with my son. That's staggering. He had so much to do. He had a business to build. We tend not to take a day off. We tend not to take a Sabbath because we, we think we can't afford to. If we, you know what that is? That's a day of trust. It's a day of rest because nobody can go 24-7. I find it interesting that after speaking of schedule, the next thing that is talked about in this text is children. You guys still there? I mean, I've already talked about kids, but look at it. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Uh, children, your children, 
And those of you who are grandfathers, those of you who have those grandkids, those are your arrows which you shoot into the future. Who will be living on the face of the earth and raising families and being leaders in churches and leaders in communities when you're dead and gone. Um, you know I love Churchill. Um, remarkable man. William Manchester writes in the biography, the first volume of the three volumes that he was going to write on Churchill, he got two done. And now Manchester is a very, very old man and won't be able to finish the third. But he writes this, when Winston was seven years old, his parents decided it was time that he left home. That just drips with sadness. He talks about his mother, who was an American, who um, was in the highest social circles. Party after party after party. Um, he would write her and ask her to come and visit, and she never did. He would write his father to come and visit. He never did. One time his father had a speaking engagement across the street from his school, and his father did not come by and say hello to his son. He would come home for Christmas, and his parents would be gone with their friends. Manchester says he invited his mother to a special event at his school. She declined to come. He says she planned feast for her friends. Winston asked for bread, and she gave him a stone. Um, they were so uninvolved in this child's life. The school situation was so bad it wasn't until he came home on a holiday and his nanny, who undressed him, um, saw that his back and bottom were completely crisscrossed with welts from a belt that it got their attention. What were they doing? They were out trying to build something they thought was important. Um, uh, you know what these people thought? They thought children were an inconvenience. The Bible says children are a gift from the Lord. They're a gift. How many of you guys are grandfathers and you've got grandchildren? You know what those little kids want to do? They want to hang out with you. I told the story. David, you heard this. I'm going to tell it one more time. Uh, my parents live in California. We lived in California. In 86, we moved to Arkansas. And we'd been there a couple years and Rachel said to me, she was probably 9 or 10, she said, Daddy, I really want to go to Yosemite. She'd been reading a picture book on Yosemite. I thought, great. We lived two hours from Yosemite for years, and now we're 2,000 miles away. I didn't say that, but I thought, that makes sense. <laughs> and we were talking about it, and she showed me her pictures, and I said, well, you know what, Rachel, we're going to go out there at Easter time at spring break and stay at Grammy and Papa's house. I said, I'll tell you what, why don't we... Um, why don't we just plan to go over to Yosemite? It's just a couple hours from their house. And we'll go over there for, uh, maybe for, you know, just a couple days. She said, Dad, that'd be great. She was really excited. So we get to my mom and dad's house. And we're, now, my dad gets up early every morning. He's got his inner alarm clock that goes off about 545. He gets up, gets his coffee, gets his Bible, spends the first hour with the scriptures. And uh, then my dad would get on his bike because they lived right alongside San Francisco Bay. I mean, they weren't. They weren't 800 yards from the bay in this path. And my dad had a bike, and my mom had a bike, which she never rode, but my dad would ride his bike. And he'd ride five, six, seven miles in the morning. And when we were staying there, uh, we were doing something one night, and my dad said, well, I'm going to go on to bed. I'm tired. I've got to get up early. And, uh, and Rachel said, why are you going to bed? He says, well, I get up and have my Bible study, and I ride my bike. And she said, oh, you ride your bike? Where do you go, Papa? And he said, well, I ride down to the pier. And she said, she said, well, can I ride with you? And he said, well, well, sure you can. He says, I go pretty early. She said, well, would you get me up? And he said, well, sure, I'll get you up. So the next morning, he gets her up, and she gets on my mom's bike, and they don't ride seven or eight miles. You know, she's 10 years old. They ride down to the pier and back. It's a couple miles. Well, that night, she said, Papa, are you going to ride bikes in the morning? He said, sure. She said, can I go? Yeah, let's do it. 
three, four mornings in a row. She gets up, rides bikes with her papa out to the pier. Back They're gone, you know, an hour and a half or so. Well, I said at dinner that night, I said, all right, we're going to leave tomorrow. Uh, and we're going to go over to Yosemite. And, you know, we're going to do, and, and Rachel said, Dad, I can't go to Yosemite. <laughs> I said, well, well, sweetheart, I thought that's, that was a real big deal for you. You, you remember your book and all that? And she said, oh, yeah, well, she said, yeah, I'd like to, but, but how long are we going to be over there? And I said, two days. And she said, well, I'll miss my bike ride with Papa. Now, I don't know what they did when they went out and rode bikes. I don't think my dad took his Bible, and I don't think they exegeted the Book of Romans. <laughs> I don't think they went over systematic theology. Um, but you know what they did? They just spent some time together. And they talked. I don't know what they talked about. And uh, they were just together. That's bigger than going to Half Dome. That's bigger than seeing those majestic waterfalls. Um, you know, guys? We've been called to do a work. Quite frankly, most of those guys in Kings, they were, too risi they were just too busy to ride the bikes. They were just too busy to be there for the teachable moments. They were too busy to... They were too busy building a kingdom. They were too busy building a kingdom to build a family and to build their legacy and to shoot those arrows into the next generation. When I look at that study, that's one of the things that hits me. See, those guys didn't finish strong. And I'll tell you what, that's how I want to finish. I want to finish strong with my kids. I want to finish strong with my wife. I want to finish strong with the Lord. And so do you. Let's bow. Father, unless you build the house, we labor in vain. We're laboring. We're working hard. We've got responsibilities and We've got plenty on our plate. But Lord, don't let us get out of focus. Don't let us get diverted. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, he said, learn from me. And when we look at the life of your son, he poured himself in to some key individuals. And he shot those arrows into the next generation. And then they shot arrows into the next generation. And on down through the ages, and here we are, and now it's our job to shoot arrows into the next generation. Give us wisdom, Lord, to take the time that we don't think we have. Give us time to make the investment that we think is not important. Give us wisdom, Lord, so that we're not deceived that it's a day wasted. Give us wisdom to understand that it's a day when you can do great work. Help us to live wisely, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.